I'm Audrey Cooper, editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and you're listening to Fifth Emission. Our political reporters, Tal Copen in Washington, D.C., and Joe Garofoli here in the Bay Area, spoke with Senator Kamala Harris today for Joe's podcast, It's All Political. We're going to play the episode for you here on Fifth Emission. If you want to hear more interviews like this with the players in national and California politics, you should subscribe to It's All Political. Here's today's episode, Joe and Tall with Kamala Harris. Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the podcast, our guest is Senator Kamala Harris. We cover a lot of ground here today, including what she'd say if Joe Biden asked her to be his running mate. As we all know, the senator is at the top of the veep stakes lists everywhere. We also talk about her frustrations about not getting straight answers from the Trump administration to basic questions about the coronavirus pandemic. And she explains the difficulty in trying to conduct oversight on the $2 trillion worth of coronavirus relief that Washington has spent so far and what she's doing about it. Now stay tuned for the extensive cooking lesson the senator offers at the end of our chat. Joining me is my friend and colleague, The Chronicle's Washington correspondent, Tal Copen. And now, here is our conversation with Senator Kamala Harris. Senator Kamala Harris, from your home in Washington, D.C., to my home and your hometown of Oakland, welcome to It's All Political. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, let me just be really clear. I work in D.C. I live yeah. in California. <laughs> all right. All right. We got that in. We got uh Hi, first of all, how you doing? You and Doug are hanging out there, correct? Everybody's yeah, healthy? You know, Doug came, Doug, um, came out for the weekend five weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> and we are making it work. So we are on endless conference calls and Zoom conferences, you know, practically day and night every day. And, and we're making it work. Great. Also joining us is the Chronicle's Washington correspondent, Tal Copen, from her home in the D.C. suburbs. Tal, take it away. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Senator, for, for making some time for us and for our listeners. And actually, I wanted to start with uh, what's pretty recent news. I see that you um, just recently had a call with the Democrats in the Senate and the vice president. And from what I can gather on Twitter, it doesn't sound like it was a super, uh, you know, peaceful, non-contentious call. So uh, we were hoping you could tell us a little bit about how that went and what your your thoughts were on what you heard from the vice president. Yeah, I mean, just to be very candid and frank with you, it was extremely frustrating. It, we've now had a couple of calls with the vice president. We plan on having another one next week. And, you know, I appreciate that he and the administration are, are having these calls with us and it's the Democratic senators, our caucus. But the, the answers are that there just aren't answers, meaning there are answers available, but we're not getting them from the administration. There is a lot of obfuscation. There's a lot of, you know, general kind of statements combined with flattery of, of whoever is asking the question, but no direct answers to very specific questions, such as what is the administration's goal for the number of tests they will conduct by once a day? Um, it, give us metrics, because, of course, the president keeps having these press conferences, including saying that he's going to open back up the country. Well, what will be the threshold for doing that? And what are the metrics that they are then um, measuring their success or, or lack of success by? And we just can't get straight answers. And it's extremely frustrating. Um, 
we we are asking questions about testing. We are asking questions about uh, what the administration is doing in terms of the supply chain. You know, one of the things that you have to realize about testing, if we're talking about blood tests, we literally the supply chain includes asking the very perhaps seemingly mundane question like where are we going to have enough syringes, right? And um, and you know I I give full credit to my colleagues who are all paying very close attention to this. We have all been uh, on a daily basis for hours and hours a day and been in touch with our everyone from our small businesses to the governors and the mayors of our various states. And so we're well informed about what people need and are not receiving. And again, asking the administration these questions, hoping to get direct and honest answers. And it's just, um, it's been a, it's been a very frustrating exercise. And so I'm, Sure, that is what is motivating the tweets you're describing. There's there's a lot of concern about you know more. We've got more than two trillion dollars of taxpayer dollars being spent on the fallout from the pandemic. What's your biggest concern about the oversight of where that money is going? In, in particular, the five hundred billion that uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin controls. You you've uh, you've have a history of uh, oversight during major economic crises. Uh, for our listeners who are not familiar with it, 2012, and your Attorney General here. You're staring down the big banks during the foreclosure crisis. They're offering a few billion to help out the California homeowners who lost their homes or underwater. She got about 20 billion back uh, out of them. Um, so two questions, what's your biggest concern and what parallels from then do you see now? Uh, you're right, Joe, that's a great point because back during the foreclosure crisis that devastated California, we often had seven of the top 10 cities in the nation hardest hit by the foreclosure crisis. And as you remember, it was controversial. I pulled California out of the negotiations, but when we, because they were offering us two to four billion dollars, got in a big battle with the banks. But we ended up bringing twenty billion back to California. But part of what I did in going rogue when I was attorney general on that issue is also to say I'm not going to deal with just a national monitor. I want a monitor specifically for California. And in fact, I called up Elizabeth Warren. Now, this is back, I don't know how many years ago now. And I said, hey, you got any names for me of people who would be good at being a monitor for California? Could somebody who's knowledgeable about the foreclosure crisis? And she said, yeah, you know, I got this person who I think would be great for you. Her name is Katie Porter. <laughs> no way. Yes. yes. We're talking about that. I heard her on the yeah. podcast yesterday. We're talking uh-huh. about. And so I hired Katie when I was attorney general to be the California monitor. And she did an outstanding job and actually um, ended up giving a great deal of assistance to the national monitor because we were just on the details in California. So you are right, Joe. I have a history of, of, of dealing with these things, knowing that you can, you know, everyone can cling their glasses of champagne on, on high about how this is a great deal. But if the money doesn't hit the streets and the people that it's supposed to benefit, it doesn't matter. So to that point, one of my great frustrations is that, and we've been calling on this publicly, there, there is no inspector general of treasury right now. There's supposed to be an IG, inspector general, for all the federal agencies. Right now, that it's a vacant position in this administration. There's no IG at treasury. Guess where else there's no IG? At HHS. So two of the most significant federal agencies as it relates to whether the $2 trillion get to the people who deserve it, both in terms of small businesses, in terms of hospitals and, and, and healthcare providers, there's no independent body right now that is investigating and, and, and 
overseeing whether or not these agencies are doing their job. Compound that with the fact that the Senate right now, I mean, I stayed in D.C. because I felt like we still have, and we do, I don't even just feel it, I know, we have so much more work to be done. Well, Mitch McConnell uh, adjourned the Senate. Well, one of the things that the United States Congress has the constitutional responsibility to do is conduct oversight over federal agencies. Well, when Congress is not in session and there are no IGs in place, I have a very real concern about whether there is appropriate oversight to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. Part of what we tried to negotiate in the $2 trillion deal was that there would be more transparency than initially they wanted. Um, and we got more, but it's still not enough. So I am very concerned. And in fact, I was talking to, to some folks who, you know, are California businesses, small businesses who say, look, is the money just going to the friends of the administration? Because we're not seeing it as small businesses. And now the money ran out. As of yesterday, that $377 billion that of that $2 trillion that was supposed to go to small businesses has run out. And, um, and I think that, you know, there's no question at the end of all of this, we're going to see that there was a whole lot that went wrong. It's part of why Adam Schiff and I and others have called for an independent bicameral, bipartisan investigation of everything that has happened around the coronavirus. And that would begin in February of 21, because we still need to get through this before we can actually deal with looking back at it. But I have very real concerns about the oversight issue. And sort of along the lines of making sure that help gets to the people who need it, talking about the people who need it, one of the things we see is that, you know, we're coming to realize that this is not an equal opportunity pandemic, that this is disproportionately affecting the most vulnerable among us and communities that are really underrepresented, including, you know, black people, other groups of color, um, you know, in terms of their health and also the economic impact. This is really not being felt equally across the board. I know that this is an issue you're tracking closely, but what do you think can actually be done to, to try to help alleviate some of that inequality in the way this is happening. We're right, Tal, and I've been sounding the alarm on this for weeks now uh, because it was predictable, right? What these moments of crisis always do, you can look back at Hurricane Katrina, you can look at the wildfires in California, is people who weren't doing well before are doing do even worse in the moment of crisis. And so when we talk about the disparities that exist in this country based on race, they are longstanding, they are real, and they are magnified in a crisis. Specifically then, what we know is that, and I think about it in two, in three actually categories. There are the disparities based on race in terms of health, um, economics, and also education. So what we have seen is that this pandemic, which is a virus that attacks the most vulnerable in terms of those who, who have pre-existing health conditions, right? So when you know that the African-American population is 20% more likely to have asthma, 40% more likely to have high blood pressure, that black women are three times more likely to have lupus than white women, and lupus is an autoimmune disease. When you look at the fact that people who have sickle cell anemia are particularly vulnerable to any kind of respiratory virus, you know that the outcomes are going to be absolutely disproportionate, meaning that even though this virus does not attack people based on their race, their gender, their, 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 their ethnicity or their age, what it does do is it is most fatal and harmful to the people who have pre-existing conditions. 
So what I've been doing is saying a number of things, including most recently, requiring that the administration start reporting this, reporting statistics about race in terms of one, who is being affected, but also the distribution of resources. Because, and then this is obviously important, because if we're going to deal with this virus in a way that it, if at all is about prevention or early intervention, we need to identify those communities that are most at need. And if we know race is a factor, then that data needs to be collected, both to address the immediate concerns that we have about stemming the, 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 the tide, flattening the curve, but also to address longstanding historical issues in a way that as we go forward in the future, because we will have another pandemic, um, that, that we actually learn from this. But the only way we're gonna do that is if we collect the data. So that's, that's part of what I'm arguing. I'm also saying that I actually have joined a letter um, with Sherrod Brown from Ohio, Ayanna Presley, who's a member of the House of Representatives um, from Massachusetts, and requiring that the administration basically start reporting racial disparities around the administration of the uh, Paycheck Protection Program. Because what we know and have been hearing, and I've been getting the calls, is that minority-owned businesses are, have faced structural barriers to receiving the assistance uh, because they may not have the relationships with banks, because they don't have lines of credit, even though they qualify because they are small businesses who are hurting and in need of assistance. So these are the kinds of things that we need to track. We need and to track. You, yeah, go on. Have you heard back from the administration about any of this? I don't know if you caught the Surgeon General's uh, remarks in the White House podium the other day, but have you gotten any engagement back on some of your concerns? They are slow to get back to um, any question that, that they don't want to answer. And so to your point, I have had many calls, for example, and conversations with everyone from the acting Secretary of Homeland Security around immigration enforcement, Ken Cuccinelli. I have talked with the Deputy Attorney General of the United States around my concern about what are the, the, the horrible and, and life-threatening conditions in, in the prison system, the federal prison system, as well as in the immigration detention centers. I've talked directly with all of them. I'm demanding that we be heard and that we get answers. But there are a lot of unanswered questions. There is no question at all. And it is because I think they don't have the answers or they will be embarrassed if those answers get out because of their failure to address the details of this, this pandemic and their slow response and this president's denial from the beginning and his, his, his desire to, to deflect responsibility, his, his just placing blame somewhere else because he does not want to admit that the buck stops with him. He wants to pretend he is president of the United States during good times, but he cannot, he does not know how to act like president of the United States when his country needs him. And that's why, frankly, we need a new president. Uh, I want to talk about immigration for a second. It's, you know, it's one thing to talk about welcoming immigration policy when the economy is good, but uh, I want to see, do you think Democrats are going to have to take a different approach to immigration if we're facing unemployment levels that are, you know, we're hearing 10, 20, 30 percent. Obama said that he didn't do immigration reform in his first term because he was too busy dealing with economic collapse. What can we expect if Democrats take the White House in November? I mean, Joe, here's the thing. As with so many issues, I'm really focused on the here and now. I, you're right. It's a good point that you're making in terms of we need to address it based on the dynamic that exists after we get through the pandemic. But we're still in the midst of looking at a ticker tape every morning and seeing thousands and thousands and thousands of people die. 
and lose their millions of people, 22 million people lose their jobs. Um, so, you know, I have to tell you, I'm focused on the here and now and, and, and looking at the issue of immigration through that lens. One of the, the discussions that I've had with the acting um, head of the Department of Homeland Security, which is responsible through ICE for immigration enforcement, is to say that during the time of this pandemic, they should they should stall their enforcement priorities, not only around public health facilities, hospitals, clinics, things of that nature, but also that they should suspend enforcement actions around grocery stores. Because of course, people need to be able to, these we've designated as essential businesses because these are essential needs of human beings, especially during a pandemic. So these are the kinds of concerns I have. The concerns I have include the conversation that I had with the Deputy Attorney General of the United States around the, the condition in the, in the in immigration detention centers, where in Ote Mesa in California, we have over a dozen people who have tested positive, but yet there's still no indication from the administration about how they are attempting to keep people safe. One of the things I've requested is that they suspend the, the, the hearings because what ends up happening is that the courtrooms are very small. They pack people in there with no safeguards to make sure that, the, that these folks will not be exposed to what could be a life-threatening illness. And so these are the areas of focus for me. The area of focus for me is our farm workers. I've been having a lot of meetings with the farm workers because they are doing the essential business of picking the fruits and vegetables that need to sustain us during this period of time and to make sure that there are not enforcement actions happening there, but also make sure that the folks that the farm workers are working for are instituting for the farm workers safety measures so that they have protective equipment while they are doing this essential work. And so these are my areas of focus right now, but you're right. It's, it's a very legitimate point you're making, and, and we're going to need to address that. We will hear what Senator Harris would say if Joe Biden asked her to be his running mate after this short break. I hear you and have heard you say you're focused on the here and now, and that's totally understandable. But you know, the reality is we're also in an election year. You're on everybody's shortlist to be vice president. I know you said you would be honored to serve uh, with with Joe Biden if asked. I'm I'm wondering, has it, have you two discussed it at all? Did you know you had sort of a memorable moment in that debate last summer? But you have a long relationship. Has your relationship come out of that moment intact? I mean, what kinds of conversations have you guys had about the election that's going to happen regardless of the pandemic? I am very proud to support Joe Biden. I'm doing that enthusiastically. Um, I've done a couple of events for him. I did, I think, the last public event that he had, which was a big rally in Detroit, Michigan, before the primary there. Um, I am so focused on this this thing that is literally killing lives every day and causing people to be unemployed and stand in food lines for, for, for food bank hours every day. I kid you not, this is such an urgent situation. And a, a, a member of the United States Senate, who in my case represents one out of 11 Americans, I think that my constituents deserve that I would spend and that I would be focused full time. And that's, that's really where my head is. Now I'm not, I'm not immune to the discussion. I know the pundits and, and others are having this discussion about the, they call it the VP stakes. I'm honored that, that anyone might be considering me, but I, honestly, the election is so far away compared to where we are today. 
that um, I, that's just not where my head is, to be honest. So, but from this pundit, if Joe Biden asked you to be on the ticket, would you accept? I'd be honored to serve with Joe, but I, I literally, I, I just, I'm not there in terms of. <laughs> we, we hear you. We hear you. We hear you. <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, guys, can I tell you that? For example, one of the things that I'm calling for, the checks went out this week. I mean, seriously, this is like, like, just come back to the moment. Come back to the moment. Come back to today. The checks just started going out this week, the $1,200 checks, right? Well, the people who are banked, who have direct deposit with the IRS, they're getting their checks. The people who are unbanked might have to wait months. So you see people like Jose Andres and, and all these restaurateurs and those who have the ability setting up food banks because people are about to starve. Uh, one of the things that I'm calling for, again, back to your point, my years as attorney general, are the things we need to do to protect consumers and working people. So I have called on the suspension of credit card interest, penalties, and fees. Why? Because these tens of millions of people, all of a sudden, with no plan, no foresight, lost their jobs. They are going to end up, a lot of them, paying for food on credit cards. And they should not be charged these exorbitant interest rates during this moment of this pandemic. So I've said that the interest rate should be suspended for at least 120 days. I'm saying that there should be a suspension of negative reporting on people's credit scores, because guess what? At this very moment, people are not able to pay their bills on time and they should not have to suffer with them when we get through this, God willing, a credit score that might take a lifetime to fix because they were, frankly, a victim of a, a pandemic of, of not of their own making. And so that's where we got to focus. We got to focus on, you know, just the reality of this moment. You, these healthcare workers, my God, talk about the heroes among us. We're going to work every day. And it's not like, guys, it's not like healthcare workers who, who respond in a, in a moment of, you know, like a 9-11 moment or a war who, who are exposed to incredible trauma and they do this mission that they have to save lives. The healthcare workers right now are doing all that and in going to work exposing themselves to the risk of being infected and potentially dying. And it's not just the physicians and nurses, it's also the people cleaning the hospitals, it's the people serving the food in the hospitals. You know, these are the angels and the heroes and we need to get them the masks that they need. We need to get the tests out. You know, this is this is real, this is real. Look at, I mean, look at the, the images of body bags, man. I'm, you know. Um, I just wanna jump in here. We had a little technical problem where we couldn't hear each other for a few seconds, and then we moved on to the next question, which was about the sexual assault allegation against Joe Biden by a former aide, Tara Reid. Reid has said that Biden sexually assaulted her when she worked in Biden's office in 1993 when he was a senator from Delaware. Biden has yet to address the allegation, but his campaign has denied it. I asked the senator who has long been an advocate for women, what her feelings were about this allegation and what should be done about it. I mean, you're right. First of all, I have spent the bulk of my career fighting against um, abuse of women and children and, um, and for empowerment of women and children and all people. Listen, this woman has a right to tell her story. And I believe that. And, and I believe Joe Biden believes that too. Um, you know, I've spent my whole career 
fighting, like you said, Joe, to give women a voice. And this brings up, I think, a bigger structural issue, frankly, which is that women must be able to speak without fear of retaliation. And um, I can only, you know, on the issue of Joe, I mean, I can only speak to the Joe Biden I know. He's He's been a lifelong fighter in, in terms of stopping violence against women. He has been the leader, I think, really mo- most people would agree, in the United States Senate on VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act. So, you know, um, as I've said, she has a right to tell her story. Um, and and she shouldn't face any repercussions for that. But, you know, the Joe Biden I know is, is somebody who really has fought for women and empowerment of women and for women's equality and rights. You know, switching, switching back to the conversation about the pandemic and you mentioning, you know, there's so many issues you're watching. I feel like your poor press staff uh, must not sleep because I'm getting a press release from them at least every hour about a new letter that you've signed on to or a new piece of legislation or something you're calling for. You know, you and I have had a conversation in the past about how you kind of switched your career from that of an executive branch, uh, you know, politician to now legislative where you can't just you know make something happen if you want to. I mean, how do you and your colleagues think you can actually get something done in the midst of this pandemic and not have to wait to, you know, sort of a a conversation a year from now analyzing what went wrong. Can you pressure the administration to do anything? What, what sort of levers are there uh, if you see something that needs to be done and isn't getting done? (laughs) So funny you say that tall because we just had a big uh, meeting today with the vice president, as we talked about earlier. And, um, not to the exclusion of anyone else, but you can hear that those of us who have held executive office for most of our careers and the way that we approach this is we are just, you know, the, the height of frustration and, um, and, and impatience because we have held positions where we could roll up our sleeves and actually get things done. And it is, so to your point, from a personal perspective, in a professional perspective, it is extremely frustrating because I can see the things that can be done and should be done, such as, for example, the instituting and using the tool that the president of the United States has, which is the Defense Production Act. I can see the ability the, that the president and the administration has to actually create incentives for the private sector to, to, to produce the tests and get them distributed, and also to create a centralized system where we are taking stock of what is available where based on the need where, knowing that each area of the country is not being hit equally at the same time, thank God. So it's very frustrating. And what can we do? We can continue to push for oversight and transparency. Um, I'm, I'm holding a lot of community meetings, you know, via Zoom and, and teleconference and reminding people of, of what they should advocate for. I have been talking, for example, on my, my, my bill that's about voting, that the Vote Safe Act. I've t- I had a call with a bunch of different secretaries of state from around the country that was convened for me by our great secretary of state, Alex Padilla and talking with them about what in their state they can do with the ideas that we have and have gathered around creating state voting for people who do go to the polls, but to also encourage vote by mail like we have in California and, and explaining how it works so well. So it's about using the bully pulpit. It's about informing the public and the people of, of their rights and also the solutions that are within grasp if for leadership to take it on. 
and and also convening people because let's not also forget this is a moment where people are feeling extraordinarily isolated um both because physically we need to be but also it there's an emotional isolation and when people feel alone um they tend to perhaps lose sight of the power that they have and so it's also been about reaching out to people and convening people to remind folks that you know none of us is in this alone we're all in it together but um you know but speaking of leadership i just have to tell you guys i am so proud to the point that i hope i don't speak with too much bravado about california leadership at this moment of national crisis i mean like seriously our california leaders are just rocking um from you know london breed being the first mayor in the country taking all that political heat but shutting down the city to gavin the first governor doing it and i could go down the line about the mayors of california from you know around the bay area you know libby shaft sam lucardo to you know on the south side you know eric garcetti and 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 robert garcia california leadership is really literally creating the model of what leadership can look like at this moment which is a combination of grasping and and and, and embracing science with leadership that's about innovation the leadership that's about public private partnerships um i'm so proud of what we're doing and in fact that's part of why i stayed in dc to then leverage the the weight that california can have in dc with what everybody's doing in the state to make sure we're maximizing all the resources that are available to us. I want to ask you about another California leader and that's uh Captain Brett Crozier from San Born in Santa Rosa. Uh he's uh, this week you signed on to a letter uh, to the Navy asking it to detail safety precautions for sail- sailors in light of what happened on the uh, Theodore Roosevelt aircraft carrier which the Chronicle the story which the Chronicle wrote. I understand that. Uh, How did you get that story? <laughs> like what's the well, I'm just, what am I supposed to make you think I'm going to tell you that? Come on. But I think um, you let on. We, yeah, he's a homeboy. I got it. <laughs> he, is, he is a homeboy. Now, do you think? Do you think? Are you uh, pressing him for his sources, not, Senator? I'm trying to strong <laughs> army. That's your reasoning. Okay. <laughs> Look at you. Look at you. Leave that to the White House to come at me for that. Uh, do you think the captain, the uh, Brett Crozier, should be reinstated? I mean, I. You know, I. I only know a little bit about it, so I don't know that I'm in a position to say. Yes, but I I do believe that look this is a moment where we need leaders who are transparent and speak the truth and not face any political repercussion because they embarrass somebody. Now I don't know the rules of the navy. I don't you know so I don't know I that's why I hesitate one way or another cuz I don't know what the protocols are and the reasons for those protocols enough to to give you an opinion about his firing or hiring. But I do admire that he was candid. I do believe that he spoke out of the spirit of concern and protecting his people and i get that uh, i get that you want to make sure that your folks are safe and um so there you go and and senator i mean not to add a layer of frivolity on what is a serious situation and and it is very serious but you know i think we also all as americans are learning a little bit about, more about ourselves as we shelter in place and about our spouses and uh, you know i've heard you say that you and Doug are cooking up a storm and and you are you are known to be a, 
pretty avid chef. Uh, so I want to know well, what's your best home chef. I mean, I'm, yeah. 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 yes. But what's, what's, what's your best quarantine meal? And like much of the country, do you have a sourdough starter going on? Right I now? don't, and you know, but I'm in my, I'm in our apartment in DC. Right. So, um, but I will tell you what I've been doing a lot of, like many people, I stocked up on dried beans. And so like black eyed peas, garbanzo beans, split peas, um, uh, lentils. And, and so I have like many different ways, like last night. Um, and then, you know what I've been doing also everything that I'm cooking, I'm cooking at least twice as much of it so that I can freeze half of it because there is just no way to cook every meal every day. And keep, you know, doing what I need to do in terms of my role as a Senator. So, but so like I did this big pot of like Cuban black beans. So good. And I, cause I also, cause here's the thing about stocking up. Okay. You got to have good olive oil, good salt, um, Dijon mustard, garlic, um, you know, if you have, and then always keep on hand some peppers like Serrano and, and, you know, at least a cup, you know, jalapeno, uh, th- there's almost anything you can do if you have some of those basic ingredients and, and onions. I have become a hoarder of onions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we have our headline now, Harris hoards onions. <laughs> because we, we are really trying not to go to the grocery store too often as everyone right. should. Right. So when we go, we go and get everything. But anyway, my, so last night we had the black beans and um, they're just phenomenal. But I also have kept like, um, some chipotle and other dried chilies. And then, you know, you could do that if you eat beef or pork, you can make like grind that up and make a nice marinade overnight. Just, just do like some minced garlic with that and a little chili powder and then roast that thing really slowly. That's the other thing I'm now doing a lot of slow cooking because I am home all Mm. day and night Mm. long. So you can, so I have these great recipes that just, you know, put that Dutch oven in the oven for four hours and it's magical what you can get out of that. Wow. I think we've got, you got a whole YouTube series <laughs> cooking with God. Yeah, as soon as yeah. it's safe, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sign you up for another podcast. Yeah, some cooking. Like grocery <laughs> shopping. If this keeps going on and it probably is going to go on for a while longer, when you do go to the grocery store, get dried beans. Like all you have to do is the night before, just soak them. Like I do white beans and with like an Italian kind of way and just cook them. And then after they're cooked, just saute up some chopped rosemary and garlic in olive oil, like about a quarter of olive I, oil. I, I throw a can of tomatoes in right, there. Exactly, some right, tomatoes. And it's so good, Garofoli, of course. And it's so good, come on, right? Come on, It's so good. <laughs> and it just, um, anyway, I, yeah, recipe book to come. There we go. Looking forward to it. Senator, thanks so much for being on, on It's All Political. It's good to talk to you. Stay healthy. Okay, you too. Thank you. I'd like to thank you all for listening, and I hope that you and your family remain healthy. I'd like to thank Senator Harris for joining us from D.C., and I'd like to thank my colleague, Chronicle Washington correspondent, Tal Copen, for joining me today. I'd like to thank the king, King Kaufman, for producing today's episode. And remember, whether you're hoarding onions during the pandemic or ordering a pizza to be delivered every night, It's All Political. It's All Political is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Our executive editor is Audrey Cooper. Our theme music, our wonderful theme music that I love, it gets me jazzed up, is Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Croson. 
support It's All Political and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for a Chronicle membership. It's very easy. You just go to sfchronicle.com slash pod.